<laughs> Welcome everybody to the Collateral Damage Podcast. I'm Mike Wilson, and as always, my friend and co-host Maureen Cavanaugh. Hey Mike, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, so my understanding is that we're going to start talking about families. Um, I think today's topic is uh, families and long-term care and some of the deficiencies in treatment and some of the things that um, you know programs and people have put together that you know have really just kind of, I mean, maybe even going back about 10 years ago when it first all started coming around that families needed to be part of this, all the changes that we've seen since then. Uh, and I know you've had some experience yourself as a mom uh, yes. watching your daughter go through this and seeing some of the deficiencies. I mean, do you want to do you want to start with that? Do you want to tell me a little bit about your uh, your experience as a mom trying to sure. fight through the system and getting access? Yeah, I in you know, before before all this happened in my life, it never would have occurred to me that my child could go into a treatment center or into into any kind of medical situation with paid for by insurance that we were paying, you know, we were paying for and that no one would answer me when I called and wanted to know if she was okay. Mm. Um, I, I mean, that sounds so counterintuitive. Here's somebody who is suffering and is sick enough to be, um, you know, in the hospital or in some kind of treatment facility. You, the treatment facility will take your money, but they don't want to even let you know if you're, you're, the person that you love is there or not. So, I mean, that's how far out of the loop I was in the beginning when I started going through this with my daughter, that not only was I not involved in her treatment or her care or, um, but I wasn't even told how she was doing. And if I called, I was told that, um, they could not confirm or deny whether she was there. And I think that everybody has heard that. Isn't that just insane though? Yeah, you want to reach through the phone and strangle the person. But it's not, I mean, this is, they're they're only, you know, doing what they were told to do. The HIPAA, you know, everybody's like terrified of HIPAA. So much so that I think we've um, really misread it. And it doesn't even make sense anymore. I mean, it was originally put there to protect. Like, so if I wanted to go to treatment, it's, it's there to protect me. You know, whether I'm in a hospital, whether I'm getting services for substance abuse, whatever it is, you know, it's there to protect. And. I think it's become, uh, you know, if I can speak from my perspective as a person in recovery going into these programs, it was a tool for me. It was it was a, a tool for me to protect myself from my family getting involved in like meddling with my treatment um, or speaking to the staff and 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 you know uh, preventing telling me them from, the truth. Yeah, t- t- <laughs> telling the truth. Yeah, t- talking about what's really going on at home, like that right. maybe home is not an option, and I'm I'm in there being like, no, yeah, my mother said I can come home; it should be fine. Right. And but it wasn't true. And it was just if, if I was afraid if they talked to my family that my family might actually influence my treatment experience or change my outcomes. And I really just wanted to go home. So, you know, right. I, on the front end, it's like, yes, of course, who wouldn't want to be protected while, you know, experiencing this extremely uh, significant treatment experience? And, and who wouldn't want to be protected? But then at the same time, what about the people who are using it to uh, uh, defend and not actually get help like like I did to my mom? Right. And then you're, so you're, you're putting all of the uh, responsibility on someone who is clearly not well mm-hmm. to do the right thing for themselves. And that's, that's often not possible. Yeah. So, um, so that's, I mean, that I went through that with my daughter. I went basically through everything with my daughter, <laughs> but uh, I think she like prepared me for this. She was like the master's degree in addiction was yeah. um, dealing with my daughter. And when I first, um, when she first started using, and then when we realized that she needed to go to treatment mm-hmm. and it was, I say we, because in the very beginning it was kind of a we, you know, she uh, reached out to me and said, mom, I've 
been experimenting with drugs and mm-hmm. I, I'm scared. I scared myself and I think I need to go talk to somebody. Mm. So I wow. thought, well, this is, first of all, this is the most wonderful child in the whole entire world who has now <laughs> done something slightly less wonderful than I would have expected out of her. But she's coming to me and she needs help. And we are going to do this. We, we, we. And um, we're going to do it together. It, oh, yeah. No, I was so like totally on her on the ride with her. It was yep. unbelievable. And um so, we, you know, we went to the hospital and we went into the emergency room mm-hmm. and we talked to people. And then um, she went to, to an outpatient program and I thought that was going to be it. Mm-hmm. And so I had no conception of what was ahead of me at all. Right. And, um, and yeah, you and, weren't part of that outpatient program, right? I mean, you weren't. No, well, they wouldn't let me come in. <laughs> oh, they wouldn't let you come in and sit down with it. I would have had they let me. I would have been sitting there right next to her taking notes for her so yeah. she wouldn't have to do it, you know. But. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they, they, they drew the line at that. And yeah. she, she, you know, it does everything well. So she did that well too. And mm-hmm. she got out and started all over again and learned how to leave me out of it because I was, you know, it wasn't our experience and it wasn't our disease. It was her. Right. And, um, and I was on my own journey and trying desperately to be on her journey. Mm. And it took me years and years to figure out that, in order to for her to get well, I needed to separate from that. And in order for me to get well, I needed to separate from that. Right. But it was a long, hard road. And I learned a lot. And in that process, I um, learned so much that I couldn't use. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I couldn't use any of it on her because she had no interest in listening to me. Right. But um, I was able to find things out that helped other people. And I found that the most important thing was the lo- that I needed was the a connection to other people that were going through the same thing. And like I as, went to- as a family member, not feeling so alone, not feeling oh like my- you're the only one going through this or that, you know, right. what your daughter is experiencing is, is abnormal, right? right? Like this is I- common. Exactly. Exactly. And I wanted people to tell me what to do, too. Mm-hmm. Not that I would have listened to them, but I wanted to. I, and I did. And I asked everybody, what do we what do I do? What do I do? But that's who I am. I'm like kind of a researcher. So mm-hmm. if there's a problem, I just research the hell out of it and then hopefully find some kind of an answer. But what I found is many, many answers. And I was able to like then begin to connect other people. And that's right. how Magnolia, how Magnolia New Beginnings came about. So these groups are on Facebook. Um, they're cl- about half of them are closed, mm-hmm. and that means that people have to ask to join. And once they join, we lo- mm. we make sure that there's no, you know, there's no marketers in there. There's nobody selling anything. There's nobody right. asking anybody for money. And there, uh, we have um, 21 administrators across the country that that keep an eye on them. People okay. go on there, and this is something that just happened the other day. Somebody went on in Kansas. And wanted to know if anybody knew of a program that would take somebody dual diagnosis with no insurance in Kansas. And a bunch of moms answered her because they were in Kansas and they actually did know the answer to that. So, I mean, I've that I think has been one of the most valuable things um, I, I've contributed to, to, you know, to this whole mess is that trying to connect people. <laughs> And it is it, a mess. It is. A, it's, it's such a mess. A mess. I mean, that's that connection, right, that you were just talking about. I mean, being being a person in recovery, I identify to that need for connection. I mean, as you were going through this abnormality, that this this uh, unfamiliar thing with your daughter, I mean, in the same sense, she was going through this as well, you know, Absolutely. and I, I was going through this and we needed that same connection. That's why we use 
you know, the fellowships of, of AA or NA or Smart Recovery, the support groups. Like, that's why we go to these places is so that we can make a connection with other people going through the same thing. If that right. didn't exist, I mean, man, how lonely right. and isolated would you feel? It would be terrible. And I was, I mean, I was fortunate. I'm in Massachusetts. We have learned to cope. And yeah. I, so I, I went to learn to cope meetings, but I, I needed to learn to cope meeting at two o'clock in the morning. And <laughs> they don't and have those just I, available. No. We actually, it's called Magnolia. Yeah. Right. So at two, you go on at two o'clock in the morning onto any of our groups. And usually there's, you know, 50 other parents pulling their hair out of their head. So, that, I mean, that was very valuable. And then we, you know, are a nonprofit and we raise money for sober living. Mm-hmm. So that, I was able to use some of the um, the hell that I went through to develop to to develop that, and then continue on and go um, and create this um, 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 practice of uh, it's a, it's helping. A system. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. created so, a system I mean, for people who just you know are not getting what they need from the current system. Right, and yeah. I mean it's the experience of having lived through this that I also use to help other families that are going through it and I mm-hmm. sit down and try to help them pull themselves out of the the you know the roller coaster that they're riding mm-hmm. I I always love my favorite thing you talk about is the birds <laughs> in, I know you oh, made the murmuration so, uh, yeah I yeah. always talk about this and I yeah. try to say it but I never say it as well as you do so you have to <laughs> but um I I just think that that's so true and it's such a, a like a a visual that everybody can relate to mm. That you should really know. You should do it justice by telling it yourself. But I—that's what I want to do. I want to be. I want to help people pull themselves out of that. That need to like just spin in in a crazy way, just like the person that's out of control. Well, I mean, and, how how easy is it to get caught up in somebody's stuff? I mean, let's say uh, let's say you're at your house and and I just came over right now and I came in like uh, you know Kramer from Seinfeld just crashing through the door. You know, I I got all these problems. I got all this chaos and immediately you're, you're thrust into my madness you know you don't have a choice i've i've brought it into your home you can feel the energy you can feel the confusion you care about me you want to try to help me sort this out guess what now you're in it <laughs> now right. you're in it with me now we're just spinning around together as because i'm not looking for a solution i'm not ready to do anything about it i'm just experiencing this chaos right right and so i mean even if you don't understand the, you know i haven't had a chance to share the bird analogy the murmuration stuff but you know same basic idea is that you know, you're getting caught up in that person's chaos and like the escape of the support group, being able to step into, uh, um, you know, support group at 2 a.m. Uh, online or being able to just throw out some of your fears and concerns online. I mean, that's that's an amazing resource to step out of that chaos uh, when it hits you, <laughs> you know, and when I come yeah. crashing through your door like Kramer. <laughs> And uh, you need a break and you can go in the other room and be like, what is happening right now? Right. And, you know, your friend or your husband or your sister can tell you you have to calm down Mm -hmm. and take a breath. Mm. But when somebody who is not going through it in the same way that you've gone through it says that to you, you, your, your response is, you calm down and take a breath. Don't tell me what to do. You don't know what you, but when on the, in the groups, when a mom says, you know what, I've been through the same thing, mm. step back for a second, think about this, think about that, and think about how the other times that this has happened and it's been okay, mm-hmm. and there's really nothing you can do about it right now. I mean, that's different coming from a mom that 
had the same experience six months ago and can tell you what happened and what they did. Mm-hmm. It's a t- it's just a totally different experience. So well, I mean, um, isn't that isn't that the same if a, you're going through anxiety and somebody tells you to relax, you know, just don't have yeah. it, <laughs> or yeah. you're depressed and like, well, just get up and don't be depressed, and you're like, what? yeah, put one foot in front <laughs> yeah. of the other. Yeah, yeah, what are you talking about? Life. Yeah, just go out go outside and get some fresh air. I'm like, ah, you don't understand, you know, and and so having like you said, having somebody who does understand. I mean, it would just be really nice. Yeah, I, it's been yeah. it's been really kind of incredible. So this is kind of the way I made you know lemonade out of lemons. It was just a, <laughs> yeah. it was a like years and years of going through this horrible experience and and learning all of this and getting to know some incredible people doing incredible things mm-hmm. and not being able to really help my own daughter with it. So I tried to help other people. And now, I mean, this is, I'm so excited about this because here are all these wonderful, exciting, um, interesting people that I've gotten to know over the years and connect with and that many of them have some really good answers to the problems. And we're going to get to talk to them and share that with everybody. Well, that's, I mean, that's my favorite part about, I want to (laughs) learn, you know what I mean? And, and, And as a uh, as somebody who can talk about this, I, I want our listeners to hear things that they wouldn't normally hear, you know, from people they would never, ever get a chance to talk to or get the, you know, get a chance to ask these questions to. So if, if you and I, um, you know, through this podcast, have the ability to bring on guest speakers, like some of the amazing ones that we have coming up. I mean, we've got we've got a woman today that's going to be speaking about this very topic. You know, the, the people that we're going to have on are people that the average person wouldn't have access to. You right. know, to understand the services, to understand the, uh, you know, w- what's happening and, and what people are doing uh, and how people can get involved. I mean, these is, I'm just, I'm super excited too. Well, and I, the the name of the podcast, Collateral Damage, is, I think that um, Diane is a perfect um, person to have on this first episode because mm. she sees the collateral damage all the time. The collateral damage being the family. Right. I mean, in my mind, when I think of that, that's the, there's many, many aspects and many, many you know, um, effects of addiction on different uh, populations and, and, and on, um, you know, on the economy, on um, just on, so- on society in general. But when I when I think of it, I think of the collateral damage of what addiction did to my family mm-hmm. and my children and my relationships and my health. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I think that, you know, having someone who is trying to make that better is the perfect person to have on this um, on this first podcast. Yeah, of course. And I know you see this all the time in what you do as mm-hmm. well, because you deal with families. And that's part of why I love the, your approach, mm. because it's family focused. And part of the reason why I took training with you, because right. <laughs> I, I like you were saying, I want to learn. I want to yeah. know as much as I can from people who I respect. And I like the way they do things. And mm-hmm. I always tell people, go. Mike Wilson has this great um meeting on a thursday nights in danvers massachusetts and they should go go sit with him and steal his stuff right. because i do <laughs> just just sit in the room absorb the information take it to others yes. yeah yes and well, I mean, um to, to your yeah. point like this is i've experienced this from a couple different angles myself as well you know obviously over the last 10 years it's professionally but initially this was the, my, my whole reason for getting into this was because of the collateral damage that was being caused you know the um, you know, being a person in recovery, coming back into my life and realizing, you know, just in, in retrospect and in, in hindsight, looking back and seeing my family didn't have a you. My family didn't have a Magnolia New Beginnings. My family didn't have a Learn to Cope. My family didn't have a me. 
You know, my family didn't have a voice. And, you know, I know that this has, it's it's become known over the last decade or more um, that families need to be involved. And I think people have found a way to get them involved. But even when I first started this, uh, uh, when I first started my company, um, you know, we were, uh, we were, uh, it was a nonprofit. It was just me sitting in a, a hallway type office at the coming center. Uh, no real structure or framework. I reached out to a couple companies and I was like, hey, you know those, you know those moms and dads that call you and they call and say, hey, my, my kid needs to go to treatment. And, and you say, all right, we'll put them on the phone. And they're like, well, they don't know I'm calling. Well, that's a phone call you normally won't finish. <laughs> and you'll end up saying, we'll have them call when they're ready. Instead, yeah. I'm like, why don't you just tell them to call me instead? I was like, so, so I can try to help them figure out what to do with their situation. Because they're not ready for you and you're not ready for them. And, right. and they were like, okay, fine. And so they started forwarding them over. And you know, for the first year back in 2009, we had like, I don't know, 170 plus families come through in the first nine months. Wow. And of those 170 families, these were almost all coming from the same few programs, you know, from the same uh, a few options. And they were coming through the door with exactly that. I need my loved one to get help and they're not ready. We don't know what to do. And basically the only thing they kept hearing was when they're ready, have them call. Mm-hmm. And that's just not enough. I mean, it's, it's not enough to sit around and wait for them to uh, struggle so badly that they're ready. Right, because there are things you can do in the meantime. And and they may not be things that you can do directly that benefit your loved one, it, 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 or it doesn't seem like that. But you are doing things that benefit them in the long run by making your family stronger, by, mm-hmm. by, making, by understanding the disease. But there's so many things that, you, that can be done. Right. We don't have to wait until somebody has some magic light bulb to go off. Or overdoses, crashes right. a car, hurts another family member. You know, I mean, that was what I kept running into was that, you know, I was running into this scenario where families were uh, uh, calling and I've actually sat down with a few and they were like, geez, I don't know if we're ready to do this yet. It might not be bad enough. And then I have to ask the question, that really difficult question, which is how bad does it have to get? You know, how bad would it have to get before you decided that it was time to take action? How bad would it have to get before, uh, you know, we stepped in and challenged them? And I mean, these are these are hard questions to ask a family and I'm not trying to put them on the spot, but it was really um, you know, there's so much you can do. You can learn, you can educate. Like what if it was not addiction? What if it was diabetes? You know, you find out your kid has diabetes. Do you wait for them to have an incident before you learn about it? You know, do you wait for them to need to go to the emergency room before you educate yourself as a parent as to what your role in is that in, in the situation, what you bring to right. the table, what you can help with. And, right. uh, you know, yeah. like you I think we're starting to learn that we can only control ourselves. And (laughs) I think that that's the thing is if parents and or anybody that's that's uh, supporting somebody, you can support them and it may not look what you like what you think it looks like. Mm -hmm. But by educating yourself and and, uh, changing your own behaviors, I know that that's what happened with me. Mm -hmm. I changed my own behaviors and also, you know, it it was not a coincidence that all of a sudden she started to change the way she was doing things too. And you know, it. We never know what's going to happen because happen because this is a terrible disease, and it it often takes a, an awful turn. And people are losing their children, the ones they love, all the time. But in my particular case, when I started to change the way I behaved, mm-hmm. she started to feel it and change the way she behaved. And right. um, and that at no point did that include me not 
telling her I love her every day mm-hmm. or or her knowing that I was there when she needed help right. but um, and when she was ready to take the help so it, it but it just changed the dynamic and it made me less crazy and that was very important because I was really 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 crazy well, at and, that point. and changing in a loving way right I mean how right. it sounds great right like to, to to say it well just change in a loving way right um, but to actually do it requires education. Well, it requires education, whether it's right. peer-led education or professionally-led education. It requires that somebody steps in and challenges the way you're doing thing, things and educates you on how to do it correctly or in a more healthy way. And you know, again, to your point earlier, I'm glad we have the guest that we have today. Um, you know, Diana Clark is going to be joining us uh, uh, for the, for this interview, and you know, her experience. She's a family outreach specialist at Turnbridge now. Um, you know, she's got previous experience as an interventionist, uh, doing a lot of family work. She uh, she wrote a book, I believe, uh, Addiction Recovery, A Family's Journey, um, which is really all about her, you know, some of the stories that she's, um, uh, uh, stories of experiences she's had uh, walk, working through this with families. And, you know, I mean, there's, I know that she has helped create a lot of family support groups in the same way that you have. And so she's been really pushing through this, and I'm really interested to hear her take on this because yeah. this is the topic: is how do you get the family involved, and and why aren't all programs finding a way to do this, right? Right, and <laughs> and I'm hope on my hope is that you know that people out there, the, maybe there's some program administrators that or or treatment professionals that will say, you know what, this would be an this is beginning the beginnings of this would be a, an easy fix why don't we try some of this yeah why don't we have the family groups why mm-hmm. don't we do things differently i was very fortunate w- with my daughter katie because we had excellent insurance mm-hmm. and we had excellent insurance before they started cutting people off right. towards the end of her uh, experiences in and out of treatment which she was in and out of treatment over 40 times yeah. um she they started to cut her off at the end so it was it was start i I watched it change but um turnbridge was um you know out of out of definitely out of my price range so um but they opened a woman's program Mm -hmm. and needed needed a couple of people to start the program with because you can't have a program without people and she was fortunate enough to um to go to turnbridge where she didn't last because she wasn't, she <laughs> yeah. wasn't, you know, she wasn't right. in the frame, uh, frame of mind to, to last. She was right. kind of going against her will. But, um, and I was still on that, that, I, you know, that idea that I was going to find the perfect place to save her. Yep. And, um, but I got to see what it's like when it's done right. And, well, and that family uh, element is something that could be uh, yes. replicated, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here today. Exactly. And, and, and my it doesn't have that, to be Turnbridge. It, I mean, this can happen in other places. It's got to start somewhere, though. You know, yes. and, and if you can, if you can create a model that's effective, and by that I mean adding that family element. That's what that's what I'm hoping to hear about today. And, yes, the um, left, the missing piece, yeah, definitely exactly. in so in so many places. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited for this, and so. Um, so today we're going to hear from Diana Clark, again, a family outreach specialist, um, author of Addiction Recovery, A Family's Journey, and please enjoy the interview. So today we have Diana Clark from Turnbridge, a uh, long-term residential program for men and women ages 18 to 30, uh, as well as an author who's going to be joining us to share her thoughts and feelings on uh, the long-term programs and families and really just giving her giving us her perspective and uh, Maureen, I know this is uh, families is a topic that you love as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And 
certainly the way Turnbridge does things. I'm really excited to talk to you today, Diana. All right. Well, let's bring her on. Diana, how are you? Great. It's great to be here. Thank, Thank you, you for being on with us. I appreciate that. Yeah. And so um, could you tell us a little bit about your yourself and your role down there at Turnbridge? Sure. I am the family outreach specialist. And what that means is that I am out there in the communities, running parent support groups, developing curriculum for families. But primary, my job is to beat the drum for family recovery. That's mm. my job. That's yeah. a great job. <laughs> That's a really yeah. good job. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously, I've, I've had the benefit of going down to Turnbridge. I've known you for quite a while. And I know that, uh, you know, we're definitely aligned in our approach toward families and how important of a role they play, how how significant having the family on board for the treatment process, understanding the illness and learning about how they play a role in their loved one's long-term recovery is just so critical, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If we look at this as the family and we all focus on Joe Jr. who goes off to treatment. Right. If these other four people don't change and they come back into that family system, the odds of regression and relapse are astronomical. Right. So if these four people do a shift, then the family system can be whole. Well, that's the, the sick tree theory, right? You know, you, you pull the sick tree out of the sick forest and get it well and you put it back. It's a sick tree again. It's no, there's no way to there's no way to fight that. Every I mean, what family doesn't want their loved one to go to treatment, come back fixed and everybody doesn't have to change? I mean, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> we all hate change. Yes. Yeah. I think there's a real conflict, too, because you feel like we keep telling the parents it's not your fault. You didn't create it. You can't cure it. And But yet they do have to change. There's that extra C in there, I think. Mm -hmm. or, or an R, which is we are responsible as family members for our part of an equation. We may not have caused that, but we're responsible right. now for being a member of a ally in recovery. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if of course, parenting plays a role, you know, of course, nature plays a role, of course, nurture plays a role. So, I mean, here you have a family system, the entire system has broken down, you know, the yeah. individual struggling and then the family system has to adapt. You know, maybe right. they don't bring things up. Maybe they start keeping secrets. Maybe they, you know, they lock their doors. I, I met a family that told me they were living like hostages in their own home and they had normalized this thing. And they felt like that if the individual would just go get help, that the trauma would go away. And absolutely. Was, well, absolutely yeah. not. But this has been happening for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I walked into one home to do an intervention, and the mom had a lock about that big on her purse. Jeez. And I looked at her, and I said, what's to stop him from picking it up from the handle? <laughs> <laughs> just taking it with him? <laughs> and she said it was more the point than the, than the safety. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people in so much pain, and they're typically not able to go to a treatment center that offers a program like this. Right. Um, could you just like talk a little bit about how, what it's like to to be a Turnbridge for a parent? So, what it's like to be at Turnbridge for a parent means that you are actively engaged in the process. Well, we have mandatory psychoeducation workshops. We also have a three-day retreat and educational experience for parents. We have parent support groups all over New England now. We used to have just a few in the Connecticut area. Now we have Boston and New York and D.C. We're expanding and doing community support groups for anybody who has a struggling loved one. Well, those, so, 
And those, yeah. those community support groups, I mean, that's that's just an amazing resource all in itself is to be, you know, to have them. They're, they're facilitator-led, correct? They are facilitator-led. And Lauren Springer, our director of family services, in addition to running some of these support groups, she is available as a resource to parents 24-7. And, and it is genuinely 24-7. She answers those calls anytime. Wow. She's amazing. Yeah, and that's a resource to parents. Jeez. So they're getting coaching, they're getting support, they're getting education. And the whole message is we are all in this together. That's pretty amazing. I wish we that could somehow trickle down to to um, other treatment centers and um, and we could do this in other places as well. I was fortunate in that my daughter was able to experience that for a little while. And um, I found it interesting that you had somebody there that would answer a parent's phone call that wasn't bound by HIPAA. Mm-hmm. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't understand why we don't have that everywhere. I just can't. I don't understand yeah. it. And I'm sure parents don't understand it either. So we are set up as two different agencies. We have a clinical agency and a residential agency. And the clinical agency is bound by HIPAA. If you were to call the director of clinical services, he could not talk to you. Right. But Lauren works with the residential piece. And we are not gathering information on the residential piece. Strict, it's more is- educational, right? It's it's not HIPAA bound. Right. Yeah. That's so it was. I mean, that was so wonderful. I re- the relief that I felt when I talked to her and I said, "Okay, um, I just want I want somebody to tell me if she leaves." That's really was my biggest concern. Mm-hmm. Not even yeah. thinking that I could actually be involved in the treatment process. You right. know, that wasn't even that wasn't even on my radar because I was so used to being left out. Yeah. But just that part alone was pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been to long-term programs. So, you, you, I mean, I know TermBridge is a long-term program. You're talking about being able to, you know, keep them there long enough to actually have a, a lasting effect, you know, not just to deal and with them. And the family. Well, exactly, and the yeah. The whole system. Right. The whole system. I mean, if you have enough time to get beyond the, you know, the, the, the physiological connection to the substance and the immediate yeah. crisis that the family's going through and then everything calms down, everybody's like, oh, it's fine now. We're good. Well, no, now, now let's deal with what actually happened and all the damage that was done, the collateral damage, if you will. You know, let's let's get to the meat of this. And, you know, I mean, I've been to long term program like the uh, Salvation Army. You know, I think I was there for seven months uh, uh, early on in my days. And, you know, there was there was plenty of time between me and the last time I used. But there was ac- no action. You know, there weren't people actively trying to get me to change my behavior nobody was speaking to my family there was no there was no liaison who looked at this as a family system issue it was more punitive how long can we keep you to make sure you're not doing what you were doing before you know what's that did it work it did not work (laughs) that was (laughs) crazy enough that was not the solution Uh, yeah Yeah. and uh, my family system uh, stayed sick and so did i and i continued to use and uh, you know, there was there was a good intention behind it. I think the people were really just trying to keep me away from what I was doing before, like a harm reduction kind of a mentality. And for that period in time, I did do less harm. I caused less harm to myself. But I also wasn't working on my illness and my family wasn't involved, which means as soon as I graduated from the program, as soon as I completed the arbitrary timeline that they had placed in front of me, and then I went home, 
everything went back to the way it was because nothing had really changed. And I think that's what families fear the most is why is treatment? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not going to work because they're just going to come back and everything will go back to the way it was. And I yeah. agree if you don't do something. <laughs> that's right. If yeah. the system doesn't change, then nothing really changes. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what happens is that when parents and other family members aren't willing to engage in the change process, that means that the person with the disorder has to become healthier than his family. Right. And that creates its own disconnect. Boy, what are the odds that that would happen? That the individual go get well and come back so well that they can fix their whole family. In seven to 21 days. Yeah. (laughs) Three weeks. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, It's ridiculous. So now what does, what does a successful, uh, um, journey through Turnbridge look like? Like what could a, a family or an individual expect if they were going to engage in this level of extended care? Um, you know, what, what does it generally look like? Could you lay it out for us? Sure. It, you know, I will do it with a little humor. It looks <laughs> like somebody with a serious substance use disorder and co-occurring mental health disorder, a young knucklehead coming in the door, right? Mm-hmm. They're resistant or they're saying, yeah, I want to do this, but I really want to do this by tomorrow and so they come in the family is really anxious that is when lauren springer does an amazing job of holding hands and walking people through those first days of separation where they're getting calls from their loved one that is saying you know food's bad it might look nice but they're really only here for your money there's a whole host of conversation that goes on in those early days about why it's the wrong placement. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, they're gradually integrated, the family and the, the young knucklehead, so to speak. And when they leave, they're not a young knucklehead anymore. They are a responsible, launched adult. They know how to budget money. They know how to, you know, wash dishes. They know how to cook. They know how to be kind. There is a whole humanizing, launching, and sort of culling the disease from the person and winding up with the human. Mm. Man, getting the whole getting person the whole well. Person. Getting the whole person, yeah. Now, yeah. it's broken down into phases, if I'm not mistaken. So That's there's, correct. you know, there, it's, it's, there's different stages during the, the, the treatment process, or so the recovery process even, that require different levels of care, different levels of interaction, and, and responsibility and freedom as well, right? It's broken down into that? That's right. Unlike the rest of the world where, or at least in some of their families, where they would expect to progress, where they would expect based on time and not based on their behavior, Mm. Turnbridge is teaching these kids that, yeah, when you engage in the program as it is written and engage in the steps that have clearly shown to us and others that you are on the road to wellness, we're going to give you a little bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. And as you have a little bit more freedom, then we're going to give you more trust. And then we're going to have more accountability and more expectations. So phase one looks a lot like primary treatment in that they're all together for the first chunk of of their stay at Turnbridge. Phase Mm -hmm. two is all about can they safely leave the program and you know, go to a meeting, get a ride from somebody else, go to get a job, mm-hmm. go back to school, start the process to going back to school. And phase three is really where the rubber meets the road. And while they still have oversight and clinical care, 
they are really, really living adult lives mm. and encountering adult pitfalls while they have the support and safety net around them. I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, I was listening to uh, uh, Russell Brand the other day. He was a, mm-hmm. a guest of Tony you. Tony Robbins had him on. I mean, Tony Robbins and oh. Russell Brand, it was a great interview. And um, so Tony Robbins was interviewing Russell Brand on his book, uh, Recovery, and how mm-hmm. he breaks it down and how he uses uh, a different language, <laughs> a little bit more fresh language to try to bring uh, talk through the 12 Salt steps here. and stuff. What's yeah. that? Saltier? Yeah, a little salty. Yeah, a little cheeky. And yeah. uh, so he... He was um, he was asked to define recovery, and which I thought was pretty interesting because, you know, I think for a lot of people they hear recovery. It's about recovering the life you had before you used. However, you know, when you're dealing with eighteen to thirty year olds who've never launched into a life that they're trying to get back, his definition made a little more sense to me, which was um, you're recovering the life that you were supposed to have. No. You know, recovering access to the life that you were supposed to have. And I was like, that's that's the one, you know, that's the definition that means something to me because the life I had before I used was actually almost as bad as the life I had while I used, (laughs) you know, it was like, I don't want that back. I want something new. And so it was about recovering the life you were meant to have the life that you could have. And I've heard it said that the person I was will always be have a substance use disorder. I needed to become somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, do those things. And Maureen, in your experience, I know that you're you're watching people recover the life that they were supposed to have. I mean, you were just recently at a, a large event with how many thousands of people in the audience that were in recovery, you know, just 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 showing oh, recovery you. fest, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, well, yeah. Uh, recovery fest down in um, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. We had Macklemore and Fitz and the Tantrums, and I was yeah. part of putting that together. And at one point, um, Macklemore looked out into the audience and said, "How uh, how many people are in recovery?" And like eight thousand people put their hands up. It was amazing. <clears throat> but th- you're right. This is a totally different life than they had before. First of all, right. like you said, many people they start using so young they don't even they, they don't have any experience at all being uh, sober in a circumstance like this. So you're, you are starting all over again and uh, to expect people to do that on their own. I mean, my feeling is, you know, you you need at least a year. And I know that that's what Turnbridge tries to do because you let, you know, even the most well-meaning person, somebody who's really dedicated to getting well, they come out and they hit all of these different um, uh, obstacles you know, all the things that happen in, in a normal life over the course of the year, they now have to navigate these things. And often they're trying to do this without any assistance or any help. Okay. I so, mean, I, how, how many times do you see somebody come out of treatment, you know, a week, a month, even even a couple months, you know, even putting a couple months of distance between you and what you've done. And then you come back. I mean, I came back uh, a couple times at 25 years old. You know, come out at 25 years old and I came out of treatment with 25 year old problems. I had families that family members that had 25 year old expectations of me. Uh, You know, I had family members that expected me to be able to raise my child that I had at 25. Uh, So I came out with these uh, um, 25 year old problems that required 25 year old solutions and 25 year old responsibilities, except I brought 
um, you know, my emotional capability of a 15 year old to the table. Right. Uh, and my family was like, why can't you do this? And I'm like, cause I don't know how, what do you mean? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And did you even, I, did you even know that you didn't know how? I didn't. I, I mean, to be yeah. honest with you, like, does a kid know that they don't, they, they don't know how to walk? Like they don't even know they're supposed right. to yet. You know, they just crawl and scoot around. Like they don't know that they need right. to walk until you try to make them do it. My family yeah. kept trying to put me in the position to be responsible, to be capable We'd come up with awesome plans and write it up on paper. And I was like, yes, I'm going to do that. But I couldn't. (laughs) And it was just, I mean, my own personal experience was full of just stop doing drugs and be normal repeatedly over and over and over again. Right. Right. I mean, you go to a program, you have to live sober, change all associated habits, change your friends, change your structure, change your way of coping in the world, deal with stress, struggle, and pain, clean up the mess. Mm. And the world is telling them they're supposed to be happy doing it. Right. So, well, sobriety is painful. Sobriety actually sucks for somebody who's been using to yeah. find relief and they found security with it. They found safety in it. And then it's like, okay, well, you shouldn't do that and you should feel good not doing it. And I'm like, I think I disagree with you. <laughs> I think maybe I disagree with you. And then a second life gets hard, right? All of a sudden it gets hard and they're like, but you've got three months sober. And you're like, I know, but... I'm just going to get high. <laughs> and I need people don't to understand. What happens. I need to yeah. relief. That's it. I don't know how to soothe and cope and get relief mm-hmm. without substances yet. I had this conversation with somebody last night who was struggling, you know, and I said, you have to sit with it. What you're going through, you're going to have to sit with because it'll pass. Mm. And But that's not his experience. His experience is that he, he, he treats it by getting high and then – it, you know, it passes, but he's not party to the whole passing of it. Yeah. yeah it so, really and, yeah. Right. My therapist once told me when I was in my 20s, Diana, every feeling fully felt passes. Mm-hmm. It is only when we stuff them that they get sick. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I can't stress enough, um, you know, exactly how, uh, you know, w- whenever I was, Whenever I was getting sober, okay, whenever I was getting well, whenever I was in recovery, whatever phrase you want to put in there, um, one of the hardest parts was accepting that the world comes with a little bit of pain, you know, and, and, and when we talk about um, the, the, the pursuit of relief, right? So the pursuit of relief is that it's not that I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to feel any pain. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's, a, uh, a, a, there's a sense of... I don't know, liberation, uh, freedom, when you come to terms with the fact that life does come with a little pain, that life does come with a little discomfort, that you are going to feel a little depressed, you are going to feel a little anxious. And like you just said, a feeling fully felt, you'll get to the other side of it instead of my constant pursuit of, I can't feel this. I don't know how to feel this. I'm like confused and afraid. I've got to get rid of it. And that's the, I mean, what adolescent doesn't grow up and feel feelings that they want to get rid of? because they don't understand it or they're afraid of the feeling like, is this forever? Am I always depressed now? Like, will I always feel this feeling? Um, and that's not just an adolescent. Any human who is in the throes of serious anxiety, fear, pain, grieving, it feels like it's overwhelming until it's passed. It does, yeah. yeah. You really don't know what it feels like to be on the other side of it until you've gone through it a couple of times and gotten there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, Diana, so there's obviously you're doing things 
the way everyone every every parent wishes they could go to a turn bridge right they could take their children and 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 drop them off and i know that i did i was when i was when i dropped my daughter off they told me you know you can come and see the place where she's going to be while she's checking in we like to keep you separated at the beginning and i laughed and i said you don't understand because he was trying to make me feel better and i had been through so much with her that i said to him i I feel like I could run right through the wall to get to my car to get out of here <laughs> because I just to not slow it down as she gets out. <laughs> oh, I just, I just didn't want her to follow me. That's all. I wanted to leave her there, and I wanted so badly for her to get well there. And um, but you know, it was it was a go- really a, a wonderful opportunity for her. But most people don't get that opportunity. I know. Most people are seven to fourteen days tops. And, um, you know, every once in a while they get a longer term program. And if my daughter, I, I, you know, I keep referring to her, but it's what I know. She had maybe 40 different treatment centers she walked into. Mm. And that was the only one that somebody talked to me and told me about, you know, that there was something there for me. Now, that's the odds are that's not good. So what would you suggest if. You have all these places, a lot of them, like here in Massachusetts, where I am, we have the mass health places. Uh, the budgets are very small. If they could make one change, mm. we could make one change. I know involve the family, but if there, maybe even a position that was available. or I think with that liaison position for somebody who is there to answer those calls for families in crisis. Mm. I think that would be the position I would add. And I would also encourage those parents that while the state of Massachusetts may not provide the support groups, there are many organizations in Massachusetts providing supportive services. Yes. So we're talking about, we're talking about adding that family element, like having, I mean, what would that actually be like to, to, to add a family advocate? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. I don't even know if that's that that hard. That's not a that's not a big far reach to have to have a program add one well educated family liaison position, right? Um, I don't even believe that that's uh, that outrageous, to be honest with you. Well, I totally hear you guys tell me that it happened then. Yeah, it's (laughs) right. Totally overlooked. I mean, even if they, even if a place does have any kind of family support at all, it's usually dedicated to that few families that that seek it out. It's not like in in York in Turnbridge's case where everybody is expected to attend and participate. The whole family comes to treatment, and that's just the way it's got to be. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an idea that we have to um, we have to try to get to catch on in every facility well i do know you know i mean the, the the reason we chose the name of this podcast collateral damage we're not just talking about how to get people well how to get people into programs we're not just highlighting where you can drop your kids off i mean the the impact that this has across the board the way that it affects family systems and the way those family systems impact our communities i mean it would be foolish not to i mean you they know? used to give this number that there were for every one person struggling with a substance use disorder, there were four other people who were collateral damage. So that's basically a hundred million people in our country alone. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't even take into account friends and employers and child care providers. Mm-hmm. Now they're talking about for every one, there are 10 people struggling I, with that person. 
you can keep adding that up, you know, I mean, the first responders, just if you pay taxes, <laughs> you know, right, I think right. in the future, we're going to be having a conversation yeah. shortly, uh, you know, about the economic impact. I mean, if you right. forget right. about if you don't know anybody that that's over now, like everybody's like, oh, everybody knows somebody, even if you're the one that doesn't, do you pay taxes? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do you pay for yep. your community's first responders to have a job? Do you pay for the yeah. fire department, the, the emergency services, police department, whoever has to show up for an overdose? If you're alive and you pay taxes and you love people in any way whatsoever, you're definitely affected by this. There's no, right. it's impossible not to be. So, right. Excellent. Anybody else have any other questions? I feel mm -hmm. like I, I, I feel like I, I want to just, I want this model to be, I want this to be the model. You know, I, I, I want yeah. this. I want, and, and I don't know, I don't know what direction to take it in. I don't know how to challenge. Um, you know, the insurance industry, I don't know what advocacy group can, can stand up and scream from a mountain that long-term family-focused care is what's necessary to address this epidemic, but I'm grateful that there is an opportunity, and I'm grateful that you guys focus on the family element so much, and uh, again, I'm just very grateful for having you on our podcast today to talk about it, and I hope that... And I'll that... be some thought. I mean, there were there are academies that train peer recovery coaches. Maybe they have a separate um segment for family advocacy hmm. possible yeah i mean that would be nice well, like... you, can, you can start it the two of you i'll come see <laughs> <laughs> no it's not a bad idea yeah. you know i think that people have to understand hipaa better too because i don't think i understood it as well as i did after lauren explained I mean, that she was she was able to talk to me because she wasn't bound by HIPAA. And I don't I think that we've taken it to such an extreme that oh, I know I had to find out when my daughter was in treatment or in the hospital by the um, when I got the bills mm. <laughs> that they didn't mind sending me. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. That's I mean, they have absolutely no problem reaching out to get reimbursement. But it's that it's that conversation. And I think this was. You know, I, I may, may have made this comment previously, but, you know, there was uh, there was some discussion uh, recently about the percentage of people that are in treatment and where they are in the stages of change. Um, you know, that there's a there's a larger percent of the population, possibly 80, 20, uh, 80 percent of the people that are in treatment are still wrapped up in the pre-contemplative, contemplative stages of change, which is you know, a really yeah. tough place to be stuck. And, right. you know, them being stuck in that place, it's like. You know, the, the, I, I think the treatment model and protecting the individual and their anonymity and, and stuff like that is really focused on the 20% that are there for themselves, that are self-motivated, that are driving themselves through treatment because they, they want to change. But it's yeah. that other 80%, the larger population that needs so much more wraparound services. They need their family involved. They need family uh, uh, impact. That they're, they're, I think they're missing out because of the way the system is built. Not yep. that people don't deserve that privacy, not that a self-motivated individual shouldn't have that, but that for that 80% of the population that's still struggling, they need something else. Right. And I think that that 20% who is engaged would be more than happy to have their families engaged with them. That's right, because the other eighty percent don't want them engaged, so they don't meddle. <laughs> no. I don't want I don't want my family to stop me from like going home. Drinking the Kool Aid and understanding right. the ways I manipulate. Yeah. I don't want them to change. I don't want them to stand in the way of me going home. That's uh, right. That's yeah. what I used to say. I used to say that all the time. Sure. <laughs> 
get the case manager on the phone with my mother. I'm like, they told me they don't even know why I'm here. I'm, I'm they don't, they, <laughs> they don't even, they just told me I should go home and that you're crazy. And my mother's like, what? Right? What's that? I could teach. Oh my these god! Guys. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know. You guys, this is this is. The, I could teach this. I could run this group. I could run this program. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've all heard that. Every I think every parent's heard that. Absolutely. Well, that's the call. Yeah. I mean, and and you know, Maureen, to your point, that's the call that I think the parents are so frustrated with is that they get the call from their child or loved one. They get the call from, uh, you know, a case manager or something talking about what their loved one has agreed to as a discharge plan, not necessarily what they need. Uh, you know, you've got this individual who's like, well, well, they've agreed to come home and do outpatient. What do you think about that? And the mom's like, well, I mean, I guess, is that what you recommend? And well, that he's willing to, you know? And so it, it becomes this, what should I agree to? What should I believe? What should, what should the best next steps be? And right. And the, and the family and the hasn't worked on themselves or got, yes, exactly. Yep. So they're just like, they don't know what to do. And they're thinking that I guess this is what happens. And they haven't had the, the, you know, the ability to learn on learn as a family unit. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I've been told if you want to solve a problem, just try to explain what the problem is, and the the solution will present itself. And I'm convinced that this conversation has done exactly that for us. (laughs) Absolutely. As we start to highlight the deficiencies, and as we explain the problem, matter of factly and thoroughly the solution yep. becomes obvious adding a yeah. family element to any program insurance based or otherwise there should be a family liaison an advocate uh, an educated peer somebody that can reach out to the family and provide a compartmentalized educational portion to the treatment program even if they can't provide direct access to the counseling or therapeutic services the program has to offer right that's Exactly. So there it is. We just solved the problem on our first so podcast. We're <laughs> family recovery yet again. <laughs> we're going to take this as a W for today. This is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, well, thank All you right. so much, Diana, for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. And I hope that you'll be a guest again someday and we can revisit this topic of long-term extended you. care, family support. So once again, thank you so much for joining us, Diana. Thank you. Thank All right. you. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, what a great interview. Diana just, I mean, she really she really hits the nail on the head when she's talking about the families and how important it is to just have that liaison, right? Yes, uh, You know, absolutely. that one person that's not bound by HIPAA that can just talk to you and educate you. you know, why that is this so piece? difficult? It's so, it's so obvious. I don't understand why there <laughs> one, aren't more places doing it. One paid position. That's it. We're talking right. about one paid position at each program whose sole responsibility is to make contact with a family that otherwise wouldn't hear anything. Right. But again, you know, I mean, that's that's assuming that there's even a, a little bit of a, a release, right? Just because, yeah, I get it. I, I, I understand that, you know, by, by uh, according to HIPAA, um, you know, they're not allowed to confirm whether they're there or not. Yeah. Um, but it would be great <laughs> if that one person, like if the liaison could get, just the basic permission of, hey, we're not going to talk about your treatment experience, but uh, can we just talk to your family and try to help educate them? And, and yeah. you know, maybe they'd get a yeah. yes. You know, maybe right. if they stepped in and explained themselves, they'd get a yes instead of just assuming it's a no. Right. Exactly. Oh. I, uh, I mean, she's just, I, you know, that, that that's something that is so important and so needs to happen because all the suffering that the family goes through, too. I mean, yeah. their, their programs and their groups. I'm so happy that their groups are open to the public. 
Yeah, what'd she say? They're in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Virginia, uh, led by three different people: uh, Diana yeah. Clark, Lauren Springer, Justin Cambria. I mean, there's the the and idea Lauren, that Lauren Springer is amazing too. Yeah. So I mean, I know her as well, and I don't know Justin, but these are like people that have been doing this for a really long time, mm-hmm. and you're getting the benefit of of all of their experience mm-hmm. and and. Keep in mind that this is one of the few places that's doing anything like this, right? <laughs> yeah. So, can you imagine what those groups are like? I know, I know. Well, there's, I mean, there's another, there's another program up in New Hampshire that I know has a uh, created a um, a recovery set, like the Pritz Recovery Center. It's very community yeah. based, you know. And I'd love to have yeah. them on here as well at some point to talk about Absolutely. that. Absolutely, you know that that's what it is. It's these little pockets of people. Um, you know, setting up a camp and trying something new, you know, stepping outside of the boundaries of what insurance says they're supposed to provide, not the minimum, but the most, you know what I mean? Not, not just the basics to get by, but what can we actually add into help? And, and, you know, uh, like I said, when, as Diana was explaining it, I mean, how, how better to do it than to provide a baseline education separate from the therapeutic services, just to give a family like, some common sense understanding of what it's going to be like to provide uh, to support long-term right. recovery. And you know, this is the thing. So with our with this podcast, I'm hoping that it's not just a bunch of complaining, you know? I mean, no. we've we know what the problem is, and there are people no matter what the problem is, they have if not the answer, a part of the answer. And this is we have to take this as as because every parent can be an advocate every loved one can be an advocate and go to the treatment centers go to the uh you know bsas and and the place the places that regulate all the bsas in massachusetts is the place that uh, regulates um the uh, treatment centers whatever it is in your area and say how come we don't have this right because this this will change things it'll it'll create a different dynamic with the family and um you know this is a model for what works well if these conversations do anything like let's just say they spark a a, a desire from a family to be like well why don't we have that do you know what i mean maybe they don't even know what to ask for (laughs) you know why if this podcast sparks that conversation it's like well why don't i have access to that and then they call the program and say hey program why don't i have access to this and then the program asks the director like hey how come this family doesn't have access to that? If that's the path to get there, and it can start with these conversations, like I said earlier, if we can bring, if we can bring guests on, and just talk to them about, you know, the, the questions that no family would ever have the opportunity to ask unless they're traveling around, visiting all the programs, and talking to these people, maybe, just maybe, on the other side of this, something will change. Right, and I'd love for people to visit our Facebook page, Absolutely. and uh, our our um, or or send us an email, mm-hmm. and um, it's cdpodcast.com. Cdpodcast.com. That will get com. them everything they need to know about how to find us on Facebook, on Twitter, how to follow our podcast, subscribe to our podcast, find our YouTube channel. I mean, in all honesty, we're going to make this available in so many ways that if they can't find it, they might be doing something wrong. So um, <laughs> and I, I, really, I really want people to tell us what they want to see, too, yeah. because we hopefully will have access to people that will have an answer or they mm-hmm. may have new information. Mm-hmm. So if there's anybody out there that has a question that wants that has like that thinks that somebody they know somebody they'd like to hear. Mm-hmm. I invite everybody to, to get on there, get on the Facebook page, send us an email. And let us know. Absolutely. Questions, topics, uh, guests, speakers uh, that we have a contact form right on the website. Again, cdpodcast.com, right on the website. If you if you send that contact form in with your questions, we'll get them. 
Uh, if you want to be a guest, you hop on there and you send us your information and we'll review it and we'll get you in the lineup. I know right now yeah. we're, we're looking ahead at we've got, uh, you know, uh, Diana was great. We've got uh, who's next? We've got Andrew Berkey. Uh, I, I think is our next speaker, and we're gonna. That's a. This is gonna end up being a big one, so it'll probably be a two-parter. Uh, the got, smartest person I think I've ever <laughs> met in my whole life. His brain. I always tell him I want to get inside your head because it's amazing the way he thinks. Well, he's and got. He's, he's definitely got a good topic. I think we're gonna be talking about the uh, the economic impact uh, that substance use has had uh, on our on globally, uh, uh, economically uh, through our country, and so that's gonna be an interesting one. Yeah. I know we've got. Um, We've got a special guest that we'll talk about coming up soon, um, and we've got some topics that man, people probably don't even think about on a regular basis, you know. And these are the again the guest speakers that we're going to be introducing the collateral damage in a way that maybe most people aren't familiar with, um, right? And and that's just amazing. So I'm super excited for this. And um, well, I hear you're excited about Saturday night too. I am excited about Saturday. So we have a fundraiser coming up, uh, which is a scholarship fundraiser for our men's sober living, Barry's House. Uh, so Bay State Recovery Services is hosting an event. Uh, all the details of that event can be found on our website, baystaterecovery.com. Uh, tickets are available. Tables are available. There'll be a live auction, a silent auction. You'll be joining us, right? I will be there. It's going to be a good time. And uh, so everybody's welcome. Public is welcome. There'll be tickets available at the door. Uh, everything starts at 6, the dinner starts at 7.15, so there's plenty of time to get there and find seats and stuff. But this is fun. I mean, we we do this every year. We raise a good chunk of money, and we put it directly toward our guests. Um, you know, we uh, last year we raised about $20,000, which put a wow. lot of people through the house. Um, you know, partial scholarships, full scholarships, getting people in for the first couple months when they have no money, uh, coming out of treatment with nothing, no family support. Um, getting them on their feet until they can get a job and cover some of their own expenses is a really, really big deal for us. So yeah, um, well, I've actually just saw the house this week and yeah. I was really impressed. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and and I yeah. mean to to the to, to conversation today with Diana, you know, just talking about that long term extended care. Not everybody has right. either their insurance or the finances to have that long term option made available to them. So they have to like piece it together, and you know that's where we've been able to plug Barry's house in and other sober livings, you know, there's good quality sober livings around, but Absolutely. plugging them in as that really good aftercare option to get somebody beyond the, um, you know, beyond that hurdle of where do I go now that I'm, now that I'm sober, right? right. Feeling a little bit better about myself. Now, where do I go? So, well, that's why Magnolia's Magnolia raises money for sober living. Cause that is the missing piece when there isn't long-term care av available to you. Right. You know, if, you, if the most you can get is 30 days, mm -hmm. you're not ready to go back out into the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I, I love what you're doing there. Well, thank you. I'm glad. And thank you for reminding me to bring that up. I appreciate it. So it looks like uh, so our next podcast is going to be with Andrew Berkey. Uh, I'm really of, excited about yeah, that. Yeah, he's a founder of Life of Purpose. And I believe he's also he's on the board for Young People in Recovery, uh, YPR, Young which in recovery. is he's on the board of um, Recovery High School, too, which is, is near okay. and dear to my heart because I work in a recovery high school. That's right. He's actually done a little work to uh, try to help clean up Florida sober homes. He's on their task force. I mean, it sounds like he's going to be a really interesting guest with a, a lot of perspective, considering he's he's attached globally to this uh, and has insight from so many different angles. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that'll probably end up being a, a two part. We're going to we have a lot to talk about with economics, so uh, I can't wait to hear how that one plays out. All right. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. 
Uh, as always, if you'd like to find out, uh, find out all the different ways that you can listen to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to, to, to listen and subscribe, and we encourage you to choose the one that's most appropriate for you. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get informed. Stay connected. Thank you for joining us.